Welcome, you're at OTR, Over the Rainbow, Achieving Mental Health for Real. This show is about real people battling real mental issues and experts with tips to help in the battle. If you want to know more, please check out the trailer. Your host is Bob Adelman and his notes about today's episode follows. What is it like to be dead? My guest today knows since he has been dead over 40 times. Join me as we look at this very unique recovery. Fred Rutman discusses his strange problem that he repeatedly died from over the years. Also, we discuss PTSD that he suffers from as well as intermittent fasting, which he claims has many benefits. So here is Bob with the interview. Hello, Fred. How are you this morning? I am doing fantastic. Thanks, Bob. How's yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Um, could you tell the listener a little bit about yourself and why you're here? Well, I'm... I used to be a professor of marketing and finance, uh, among some other marketing roles. And I had a series of um, medical adventures that forced me into permanent disability. Um, basically, uh, I I was dead. And uh, as a result of that, I experienced a lot of uh, head trauma, uh, post-concussion syndrome, PTSD, anxiety, so, you know, a wide swath of, of the mental health issues, and um, and I've done a lot of recovery through that, and uh, I wanted to share my story and maybe be able to help somebody else who is, you know, maybe not, not in my exact situation, but in something similar, and maybe they can find something that helps them. That sounds good. I guess we should start at the beginning. Do you remember at what age that you might have had anxiety or were you pretty much okay until you had started getting physical problems? Um, well, I actually had anxiety, I guess, right from the get-go. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out in my mid to late 30s that I had probably had a stroke before, just before or just after I was born. So I had a whole bunch of cognitive impairments that nobody picked up on because, you know, I'm old and they just didn't do those things way back then. Um, And uh, so I sort of developed compensatory uh, techniques that work to a degree, but um, it got really bad after I got sick starting in 2009 when my heart uh, began stopping. Yeah, I mean, if we can go into the beginning of that problem mm-hmm. and take it from there. Sure. Um, in the summer of 2009, I started um, what the doctor thought was passing out. And every time I would pass out, I would collapse and hit my head and uh, I mean, really hit my head, you know, on curbs and uh, manhole covers and, uh, you know, counters and commercial bathrooms, which have those really nice sharp edges. And, uh, you know, had a series of about uh, 20 concussions that we know of. And uh, when you have a whole bunch of concussions uh, one after the other doesn't give your brain a chance to heal. The cumulative effect is is pretty devastating. So, what did you do uh, right right when it started? Did you go to the doctor right away? Uh, well, when it first started, I had no idea how serious it was. Um, you know, I thought I had maybe food poisoning or you know something like that because uh, it's just wasn't anything you hear of in you know you don't see things like this on the news you don't hear friends talking about it and not to bash the uh, medical system here um, but I, I was just misdiagnosed and miscommunicated with you know 15 or 20 times so the doctors didn't really know what was going on either but the reality is they eventually figured out I have a condition called severe heart block. And that means the electrical system in your heart that tells 
the atria and the ventricles went to beat, uh, it fries. It, it, you know, no longer sends the signals. So your heart stops and your blood pressure goes to zero. You have no oxygen in your brain and, you know, you collapse. And, uh, you know, to this day, they don't know why my heart kept start starting again. Um, so the first time this did happen, uh, you went uh, to the hospital right away? No, I, I didn't because I didn't realize how serious it was. Even when you fell, once you fell down, you still you still didn't go. Yeah. Um, uh, the first time I remember it happening, um, I was actually marking economics tests, uh, and uh, and I was at my desk, and I I actually just thought, you know, I had been overworking, and uh, and that's what happened. I just it was late at night, and um, so I didn't really understand what had happened um and it wasn't till probably the seventh or eighth time that this happened to me that uh, wow. uh, i ended up actually uh, calling 911 and going to the hospital and then what happened once you got to the um, hospital well i found out a few things i actually found out i was type 2 diabetic which i i had no idea um, and I also found out that the doctors had no clue what they, what, uh, what was going on. So they just kept sending me home. They, uh, you know, they did the traditional test to, mm -hmm. you know, you're an overweight, middle-aged white male. So they keep testing you for, uh, the enzymes that show you have a heart attack and mine kept showing mm -hmm. up negative. So they really didn't know what was going on. And uh, mm -hmm. they just kept sending me home. So they couldn't, um, they couldn't take a, like a sonogram because I had that done, uh, to look at the heart. Yeah, they were doing all these traditional tests. The, the problem with my condition is it doesn't show up unless it's occurring while they're doing the test. So it's, uh, it's a really tricky balance of timing. I think the other, challenge for them was what happened to me usually doesn't happen uh until you're you know a male in your mid 70s so they also weren't looking for it mm -hmm. they you know they sort of had their mindset of you know he's got to be having a heart attack so we're just going to test the shit out of him until we prove he's having a heart attack and uh that was a you know a failing strategy. And I, I think that happens uh, a lot in the medical system is, you know, the doctors have a theory and they're going to prove their theory in, instead of, you know, thinking outside the box a little bit and saying, you know, maybe we need to look for something else. Yeah, yeah I believe that. So when was it, um, was it the first time you were in the hospital that you died, or oh, I died every time. Die? So you know when your heart stops beating and you've got no oxygen in the brain, you're not breathing, you're dead. You know, it, people might might want to differentiate between mm -hmm. how long you were dead. So we know I've been in this condition. Um, ranging from 30 seconds to almost five minutes and, and like five minutes is a long time to be dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm surprised your brain doesn't completely get this. I, I was pretty rattled. Um, you know, I, I lost memory. I had severe, uh, fine motor skill impairment, balance problems, depth perception. Um, I've, uh, I've had some degree of being able to read Hebrew since I was five years old. And, uh, my friends brought my prayer book to me in the hospital and I could no longer read Hebrew. It knocked an entire language out of my head. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's so this amazing. is 12 years later, uh, or whatever it is. But, but you, you, you died every time you had the attack. Could you tell us, um, you, did, you didn't see a light, um, basically, I right? didn't see the light. Um, 
which is kind of, uh, I feel like I've been kind of ripped off. Like if you die, <laughs> you know, if you die once and, and you don't see it, but you know, when you're getting into 15, 20 times and you don't see this, you're like, what's the deal here? You know, everybody else seems to get this. How come I'm not? Um, but you did, you did have out of, uh, body experiences. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, I had a number of those. Um, and mostly, uh, I remember, you know, looking down on wherever I was. Um, one time I was riding my bike in the middle of a field. Um, it's a, it's a sports field with some bike trails that I would often travel on. And, um, and my heart decided to stop in the middle of nowhere in the evening when nobody was around. And I remember just looking down on my body tangled up in my bike and, and being very confused. Mm So, um, so you were dead at the time you had had about body. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, depending on what your position is on heaven and hell and God and, and those things, um, you know, it could have been my soul trying to leave my body and, and not knowing if it should at the time, you know, should I go up? Uh, hopefully up, hopefully not down. <laughs> and, uh, you know, your, your soul of not knowing whether it should go back into your body or not, you know, is this the final call or whatever? Um, but I remember seeing everything in the surrounding area and just knowing, you know, there's nothing there but me. Nobody's coming to help. And, uh, you know, is, is this the, the final call or, or is something else going to happen? So I guess something else was going to happen because, uh, I guess my soul went back into my body. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you came back to life, I heard you say that was very uncomfortable. It was every, every time I was resuscitated or came back to life or however you, you know, want to phrase it, um, you know, it, it was very painful. It was very intense. Uh, I could feel physical pain. Um, I guess the best way to describe it is if you're in the most intense fireworks display you had ever seen, um, it, uh, it was that loud and you could actually feel the explosions and it was that bright that it actually hurt my eyes, even though my eyes were closed. Uh, Mm. I felt like I was just getting totally battered by all these explosions. And, Mm. uh, that was, I guess my body restarting and being very unhappy about the condition it had been put in. So they finally diagnosed you with something? Yeah, they finally uh, diagnosed me. Uh, They put me on something called a Holter monitor. And uh, so it's like an ECG, but it records for uh, 36 or 72 hours, whatever. And uh, I had a number of episodes while I was wearing this thing. And so they actually caught it on tape. Um, okay. They used to be cassette recorders and these things. Now they're all digital. And um, so that was on a Friday afternoon. And But there was nobody to read the tape until Tuesday afternoon because <laughs> of uh, budget constraints. So mm-hmm. uh, then the doctor comes running into the uh, hospital room. And he's like, holy shit, your heart's been stopping all this time. You've been dead. <laughs> Gee, thanks, Doc. You know, it only took you like four or five months to figure this out. That's weird. Yeah. Do you think that comes from socialized medicine? That the doctors are a little bit on the incompetent side? Or? Um, what do you think? I, I don't know that it's the socialized medicine part. I think it's just in any industry, you've got um, a continuum of performers and some people are the superstars and then some people are you know like how the hell did you get hired and why haven't you been fired yet and I I think I just happened to run into a bunch of people initially that were 
you know, sort of like at the lower, lower end of things. And uh, right. that contributed right. to, to this being just a, you know, a one in a gazillion series of events that shouldn't have happened. Okay. So once they discovered what it was, what did they do to help you? It was just the pacemaker they put in? Yeah, they put in a pacemaker, um, which for those in the audience that, that aren't familiar, a pacemaker is sort of like a, a supercomputer that they put in your body. It's about the size of a old-style pocket watch, and they run a couple of electrical cords or leads uh, from the pacemaker to your heart, and it replaces the uh, signals that tell your heart when to beat. And, uh, you know, it has a pretty high success rate. They've been doing this for decades and it, um, it worked, worked pretty well for a few years, um, Mm -hmm. until it didn't. And, uh, pacemakers aren't supposed to fail. Uh, I'm, I'm a hundred percent dependent on this pacemaker working. And then in, 2013 this whole adventure started again i started collapsing and hitting my head and going through everything all over again and uh it was very frustrating because i had just gotten myself healthy enough to uh go back to work and then boom i was back to square one again they just replaced this the pacemaker then well, it took them a while to figure out that it was the pacemaker, and uh, it should have been just a simple replacement, but of course, uh, this wouldn't be much of a story if everything went according to plan. So um, right. while I was in the surgery, uh, just at the start of the surgery, um, I I felt that same feeling um, that that the pacemaker had just stopped or my heart had stopped again. And I realized it was happening before the doctors and the nurses saw it on the monitor. And I just went, Oh fuck, I'm gone. And, uh, then, you know, um, all the backup systems sort of came in with these shocking pads that they put on you and everything. But, uh, I think what happened is when they started to to make the incision for uh, to take the pacemaker out and replace it, um, they moved and uh, short circuited it somehow, and uh, oh. then you know it short circuited, I short circuited, and then uh, bedlam ensued. So when you died, they declared you dead at that point uh, in, in the hospital. No, they knew I was dead because the uh, the shocking pads kicked in, and the shocking pads mm-hmm. took the place of the pacemaker. So, uh, you know, on TV, you see they use defibrillators. Right. You know, they are clear. And yes. So this is sort of a similar situation, but it's, it repeats automatically. I think like every two-thirds of a second, it gives you a shock. Okay. And... Uh, because I didn't have any, when the defibrillator, it just resets your heart. I didn't have anything to reset because my system was dead. So uh, they had to keep doing that until they could put in a, a temporary pacemaker and schedule me to for uh, yet another surgery. So, But when you died on the operating table and you woke up, what was the doctor's reaction to that? Oh, the... Everybody, it's not like what you see on TV. It's like not everybody is calm, cool, and collective. They were, you know, they they were not expecting this, and uh, they had to scramble to find a temporary pacemaker. And uh, you know, they didn't bring the full unit back, from what I recall. They brought half of it, and then they had to go find the other half. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> I remember they they have to insert this through your groin. Uh, I don't know if they do it anymore. And during the time everybody was scrambling around and screaming and yelling at everybody, um, 
what they should have done is they should have sterilized my groin and uh, put some anesthetic in it. Mm -hmm. And nobody got around to that. Um, <laughs> so when they went to insert this thing through the femoral artery, um, let me tell you, it was painful. I believe they, it. You know, they had to, so, wow. but as a result of that, that little misstep, um, they also weren't sure that they had inserted the temporary pacemaker in properly. So I was not allowed to move for the next seven days. Like there's bed rest and then there's bed rest. <laughs> like, you know, you lay still for the next seven days until we figure out if, you know, you've got uh, an infection or anything. And after that, we're going to try and uh, replace the pacemaker uh, again. So, uh, yeah, that wasn't a lot of fun. Um, okay. And so how, how many times did, did you actually die? Uh, well, the first round in 2009, we at least 20. Mm -hmm. um, probably a similar amount this time. Um, then they did the third surgery, and they couldn't get the, the new pacemaker leads in my body so they had to uh stop the surgery in the middle and uh these surgeons that were working on me hmm. these are world-class surgeons so i don't okay. want to make it seem like these guys are doofuses and didn't know what they were doing mm -hmm. but i i recall waking up in this surgery um and and the surgeon was on like a teleconference with other surgeons around the world trying to figure out how do we fix this guy so it was uh, it was pretty crazy, and then uh, they finally fixed me, and everything was okay until 2018, and then again the whole thing just blew up, and the pacemaker wasn't working. It, it actually turns out it's the pacemaker lead that was cracked, and so it's like any electrical cord; it's got an insulation around it, and uh, something was causing these elect these insulations to crack on me, and then it was short circuiting the the pacemaker. So I went through this again, uh, you know, probably another fifteen or twenty times. Wow. So how how old are you now, if you want to tell? Um. Well, in dog years, or <laughs> either way, um, we can compare. I just turned sixty-one. Okay, and that's pretty young to have all these problems. Mm -hmm. Did your family have a history of heart problems? Um, no, no, nothing like this that I know of. Um, you know, on my grandmother's side, my grandmothers all lived well into their 90s. Um, my dad lived until he was 87. My aunts lived into their 90s. So we've got some pretty good longevity in the gene pool. Um, so maybe that's what kept me alive. I don't know. I was, yeah, you're, you're tough to kill. Die hard, yeah. That, that's an yeah. amazing story. Um, so when was the last time you had an attack? Um, it hasn't, it's been well over a year, I think. Okay. Because in the, the, the surgery I had in 2018, um, the original plan was just to take the pacemaker out and put in a brand new unit. Um, so my original pacemaker is on the left side of my body. They were just going to take that out and put a new one on the right side of my body and thread the leads to my heart. Uh, but for whatever reason, they couldn't do that. So they had to, uh, what's the phrase, uh, jerry rig? Mm -hmm. Is that the right word? Yeah. Uh, a system. So I'm actually running on two pacemakers right now. Mm. Uh, the original one and the new one that they could only half put in. So when the original one messes up, the new one will kick in as a backup. That's good. So it's a, it's a good system in theory, but it took a few years before they could actually get it synchronized so that it would kick in quickly enough 
for me to not have one of these episodes where I would collapse. Mm -hmm. So now, are you uh, more afraid of dying or less afraid of dying? If I can oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think anybody's asked <laughs> me that before. I was... Um, I, I guess I'm on the fence. I would prefer okay. not to die. Yeah. Well, we all are eventually. But um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good gosh, that's a good question. I, I don't think I was really afraid at the time because, you know, I was so battered and in shock and just not functioning properly at the time that I really didn't wrap my head around the fact that I kept dying. Yeah. Um, it's been sort of a, a recent, um, revelation to me that, that I was dead and it's really hard to, to wrap my mind yeah, around that. Be. So uh, I'll say it's to be determined. Okay. I, you know, I'll tell you that part of my depression is just always thinking about death now that I'm 64. Uh, and I have mm -hmm. a lot of problems. I have um, spinal issues and my legs are numb and my feet are numb. So I feel like I'm going to die every time I go to bed. But I'm so exhausted, I kind of pass out instead of just go to sleep. And I always feel like I'm mm -hmm. not going to wake up the next day. So I guess... Yeah, uh, I, can't, kind of, I can't imagine how awful yeah, that is. It's kind of a morbid, you know, kind of a depression thing. Where I, I just think mm -hmm. about, I feel like I'm on the couch waiting for my turn, like dead man walking, you know? Uh, mm -hmm. But that's interesting that um, you're on the fence, though. That's because I would, I would have died that many times. I'd be like, oh my God, when's it going to happen again? What do I do? But, well, I, I think that's always running in the background for me. Uh, that's part of the anxiety. Right is, you know, um, I, the doctors tell me I can drive a car, but I haven't driven a car since 2017, 2018. You know, it, it's one thing for my pacemaker to fail while I'm riding a bike. Right. And, you know, maybe I'll fall down or I'll run into a tree. But for the most part, you know, I'm not going to cause uh, a mass catastrophe riding my bike. Um, in a car, that's a you know, that's a whole other issue. Okay. So, yeah. Um, um, I mean, you mentioned that you had PTSD from all these, uh, experiences. Um, did, do you do anything to overcome that? You, you go to counseling, take medicine at all? Yeah. Well, I, I've done a few things. Um, I, I do have a, a great therapist, um, she she's amazing um and she's helped me a lot but the reality is probably mental health is you know the furthest behind oh, yeah. in all our traditional medical practices that acquire there this is what the show's about you know the stigma and the, you know the embarrassment everyone's embarrassed i'm not embarrassed no i'm not embarrassed either um, but the reality is, uh, the practice of medicine is often way behind, uh, what the people in the research labs mm -hmm. are doing. And, uh, there's a lady in my neighborhood who just started a psilocybin test. Uh, you know, she's, uh, and I'm not telling any tales out of school cause she blogs about this all the time, but she's been, you know, severely suicidal for the last eight, nine, 10 years. And um, I, I'm hoping uh, that that this is going to be helpful for her. Um, and I think what uh, is that test? What what, are what is psilocybin? Yeah. Uh, oh, it's magic mushrooms or a form of magic mushrooms. So it's one oh, of she's the, getting the mushroom therapy. Yeah, they just started it. She was one of the oh, first. Oh, I people heard about that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how's it going for her? With that, uh, she she's uh, well into it, or she just started it. Um, she's just started it. I think they gave her one dose, mm -hmm. and they're seeing 
how it's going to work for her because it really um it really resets your your system yeah that's what they said. for some people it works more quickly other people do a lot more dosing um in israel they're using it for ptsd with soldiers and the people that get you know uh, bombs falling on all the time. Uh, I believe they're doing it at Johns Hopkins. And I think they're doing these tests at Princeton as well, which is in New Jersey, my home state. Yeah. 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 So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's an option for you. Wow. To try. You know, the problem is I'm scared to death of a trip because I don't like being out of control of what I'm yeah. doing. So I'm just afraid that I'll just freak out or something. Uh, well, they do it with you. Like there, there's uh, doctors and guides with you while you're on the trip right. to sort of, you know, talk you off the ledge, so to speak. Um, I, I wonder if you feel good or if it feels just strange and weird. I don't know. I, I think you get a combination of both. Um, I don't know if you ever l- listened to Joe Rogan. Uh, and his podcasts, he takes a lot of trips and he talks about them and his guests talk about them. So you get a pretty wide range of, uh, of reactions to the various uh, drugs. But I, I think, you know, mindset is everything uh, with whatever challenge you're facing in life. And if you might want to reframe how you're thinking about this and, and being out of control, um, your current situation is pretty out of control. Yeah, but I feel that somehow I control it. I use I use pain very. I control my mm-hmm. pain, and that's one thing I say on this show. I think a lot of people do that. They go through trauma, or you know, they get into trouble with their relationships, and they just um, or even uh, what well, was very controversial is uh, the young children now are, are cutting their, cutting yeah. their legs and all yeah, over that's awful. to get an adrenaline rush. I had a woman on that, she because of the socialized medicine in England, she couldn't get a Xanax. And that basically is all you need mm-hmm. to get you down from hell. Yeah. And so she, so she cut up, a, a, it's terrible. Yeah. And I got a bad reaction to that show because it, they thought I was condoning cutting on the, on the first from doing that. Yeah. But one of my theories on this show is that you you have to give up your controlling of your pain of the pain because controlling the pain is better than going through the real pain because that's way too scary. Sure. It is for me as well. Mm-hmm. I had a woman on that had a. EFT, have yeah. you heard of that? Hey, we get, we get tap, and I tried that. I had her on the show. I tried it, and it it brought out all my demons like crazy. It took me a week to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid that my audience will have the same problem. So I'm scared to air it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. She swears that you know she overcomes her fears with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I I had never uh, heard about that, but actually a, a recent episode of Joe Rogan, he talked about using DMT and, uh, you know, how it took a number of trips of that drug to understand what was going on for him. So, you know, everybody has their, their different reactions and different ways of, of processing um, how these work with you or don't work with you. And uh, you know you can't tell anybody else how they're going to feel, or how they're supposed to feel. Right. And uh, that's why it's so it's still so hit and miss with with so many. Yeah, I know it's all uh, over. it's it's hard. I mean, you're guinea pigs. Everybody's a guinea pig. Yeah. For new medicine or or whatever they do to treat all all their symptoms. But um, I I wanted to talk about. Um, fasting. Oh, you have sure. a very interesting theory on fasting. I, I can talk about fasting all day. <laughs> I, I, 
and starting the fasting from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So that mm-hmm. it's a 12-hour fasting. Mm-hmm. I don't eat much in between either. So is that a good start, or how would I continue with well, this? Well, um, when I started, I was just coming off one of my surgeries, and uh, you know because I've been on so many medications, the doctors weren't sure how my body would react. So I started doing a 12-12, so a 12-hour fast and a 12-hour eating window like you are. Um, So, you know, just to uh, state, I'm not a doctor, so this isn't medical information. This is just, you know, my experience. If you have a prior history of eating disorders or if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, you should probably not be doing intermittent fasting unless you're under the very, very watchful eye of a medical professional. So um, my cardiologist actually got me into fasting. Um, He started me off with a book by Dr. Jason Fung, F-U-N-G, called The Obesity Code. And that's a, a great primer for how fasting works with your body. Um. And I started at 12-12, and I would say that was in May of 2018. And by September, I was easily fasting uh, 23 or 24 hours. So No, really? Yeah, wow. it wasn't anything I intended to do. I'd heard about people doing these much munder much, much longer fast and only eating one meal a day. And I was like, no, no desire to do anything like that. Like that seems really extreme. I heard you could die if you just fast for two or three days. Yeah, that's pretty rare. Um, I've fasted for, um, it was unintentional though, because of a surgery, but I've easily done 90 hours. Wow. Um, But I'm not recommending that for people. What's the next step after 12? What should I do next, you think? I would say just add half an hour a week. Like, because you've, okay. you've got so many things going on, it will be a little mm. more difficult for your body to adjust. I take a lot of drugs and a lot of medicine, so yeah. that's another thing I'm worried about. Um, well, any change you make to your pharmacology, you should bounce it off um, – your doctor. So I, I mentioned that I found out that I had been type 2 diabetic. Uh, and that was one of the problems is you have to dose yourself with insulin, which is, you know, supposed to balance off with a certain number of carbs that you're taking in. Uh, I wasn't taking in any carbs for those 12, 15, 20 hours or whatever. So I had to have my glucometer recalibrated every couple of weeks at the diabetes clinic. Um, to cut down my doses and things like that. And there's other meds uh, that are probably dependent on your weight and and other contributing factors. So uh, you should get it monitored really closely by your doctor uh, when you're doing something like intermittent fasting. And, and besides losing weight, you said that there are other benefits for fasting? Yeah. Uh, so my fasting guru is a woman named Jen Stevens. Um, I actually ended up as a moderator in one of her fasting groups on Facebook that had about uh, 350,000 members. So I ended up being an intermittent fasting coach. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't part of the plan, but it just happened. Uh, and she's got a great mm. book out called Fast, Feast, Repeat. and as opposed to Dr. Fung's book, this book actually tells you more about how to fast and different ways to tweak your fast uh, as you go through the process and your body changes and your mindset will change. Um, and sometimes you have to change the way you fast. So it's a great book. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, you can go for anything from the one meal a day protocols or OMAD to all sorts of variations of alternate day fasting and longer fasts and shorter fasts. Um, To clarify, these aren't dry fasts. Um, 
you know, like they do on Ramadan where they absolutely nothing from sun up to sundown. Um, these are water. Yeah, water, they're black coffee, green tea, black tea, um, nothing flavored, uh, nothing sweetened, no creamers. Um, you know, there are some people that say, you know, you could do things like the bulletproof coffee, but, uh, the bulletproof coffee, when you add butter or fat, I mean, that's, that breaks your fast. It's, it's self-defeating. So you actually got other benefits from us. Yes. From fasting. Sure. So when you fast, um, you're actually lowering your insulin levels, which is the first step. And once you start to lower your insulin levels, all sorts of other hormones start to rebalance themselves. Um, and it's, it's amazing. People think insulin is just for your blood sugars, but actually insulin is one of the prime drivers of uh, blood pressure. And if your insulin is constantly high, it puts you in a state where your veins and arteries um, harden up as opposed, not with plaque, but they mm -hmm. lose their elasticity. So your blood pressure starts to go up. So it's a combination of, you, yes, you're getting overweight and that puts your blood pressure up, but it's the constant insulin flowing into your body that really helps raise your blood pressure, which is not what we want. So we know that after a time of fasting, uh, your blood pressure starts to regulate because your veins and arteries uh, become looser and they're able to flex and expand and shrink when they're supposed to. Um, it, fasting also uh, works at the genetic level. When you fast for a certain amount of time, um, it starts activating these epigenetic systems. So your body's got all these protective measures and subsystems that are waiting to be used. Um, they just need the right environment to kick in. And uh, one of the things that you hear a lot out of fasting is something called autophagy. And autophagy is a system your body has to clean out all these excess proteins that get, I guess the scientific term is folded over and misplaced and gunk up your cells and gunk up uh, your ability to produce energy through your mitochondria. So once you fast for a certain period of time, your rate of autophagy kicks in, uh, increases, and it starts cleaning out your cells and getting rid of all these excess proteins and you can produce more energy to keep you alive and healthy and, and energized. Um, and it works not just in your cells, but it works all over your body. So we know that people who have scars, women talk about their cesarean scars and their stretch marks disappearing um, because the autophagy attacks all that uh, collagen and scar tissue and gets rid of this. It happens inside and outside your body. It gets rid of <clears throat> the excess fat in your liver, uh, which helps you function um, more efficiently. Uh, when you're fasting, you're running on ketones as opposed to carbohydrates. Your brain seems to prefer ketones, uh, so you lose a lot of brain fog. Uh, I know that's been the case for me. From Dr. Mark Matson, who's a researcher at Johns Hopkins, uh, he's probably the world's leading researcher on on fasting and it and the effects of fasting. I think he just put out a new book, but I can't remember the title. Um, but, uh, from his work, he finds that when you fast, your body starts to produce these things called neurotropic factors, which uh, work on your entire neural system and help repair nerves and build new pathways and, um, you know, heal brain areas that were pre previously damaged, like I have with the concussions. 
it, uh, it it's just been remarkable. Um, and as I said before, I attribute the large majority of, of my neurological recovery to what's happened to me since fasting. Uh, nothing else has come close to the results I've seen since I started fasting. Well, I, I love to talk all day long. I'm, you're a fascinating guest, uh, but it's time to go. Uh, before we go, uh, do you have any uh, things you want to plug? You, I heard um, you wrote a book. Uh, yeah, I've written a book. I'm just starting to negotiate with a couple of publishers. So if there's any publishers out there that, that want to get in on the bidding, um, my book is called The Summer I Died 20 Times. And it's all about my journey so far. Um, so, you know, they can reach out to me. Um, I, I think I want to add that, um, you know, there, there's a Holocaust survivor uh, named Victor Frankel, very famous psychiatrist. And mm-hmm. he, his work boils down to a very basic theory. If you have hope, you can overcome anything. And, and I think that mindset, and I'm not saying it's easy to implement, uh, but if you have that mindset that, that you have hope, um, it'll be very, very helpful on, on any battle you're trying to, fall, to fight. You may, you may have given hope to people. That's what I like to do on this show. Mm-hmm. It's right in the description, to give hope to people that are hopeless to recover. And it sounds like you're making a great uh, comeback from mm-hmm. all your problems. And you're a brave per- person. I mean, I don't think I can handle it as good as you do, but that's amazing. Well, you know, in Judaism, uh, we we have a phrase called a tzaddik, which means you're a righteous, pious person, not strictly in the religious sense, but in the example you put forth out into the world. So, you know, you with all your challenges, um, doing this show and bringing so many issues to light, you, you are a tzaddik. Or You're pathetic. Right? <laughs> I, 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 I'm selfish. I don't want my pain to mean nothing. I want to be able to help mm-hmm. a lot of people because this country, this world is in desperate need of somebody. The step, I'm only an old dying podcaster. Yeah. They, somebody needs to step up, uh, and take charge, like a Martin Luther King of, uh, you know, ADHD. I mean, right with the ADHD group, the group I'm, I'm in, I couldn't believe how many people had the exact same story about the relatives and nobody understanding and they don't think it's real and all of that. Mm-hmm. And they call them, we call ourselves, uh, I, I like this term, neurodiverse versus neurotypical. So if you have like ADHD or autistic or anything that uh, prevents you from, I guess, having a clear mind and being able to socialize and things like that, uh, go into that category. You know, I'm glad we define that now, mm-hmm. but we do mean to push forward because we're running out of time, basically. I mean... Yeah, I, I wouldn't minimize what you're doing here, Bob. <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, just classify you as a, as a, a dying, you know, 64-year-old podcaster. <laughs> you, you are one of these people who are stepping up. Um, one other thing I'd like to mention is there's a, a doctor named Rhonda Patrick, uh, and she has a great podcast called Found My Fitness. Um, and she is big into the health effects of saunas. And I know that's wow. not something that's accessible to everybody, but um, there's strong research that says if you can get into a sauna four times a week, you have a 60% reduction in all cause modalities for, for dying. Like that's huge. Mm-hmm. And if you can add a little exercise into that, um, you know, it works on the same, almost the same principles as fasting. It creates an environment that your body kicks in all these healing um, systems. 
Yeah, I have no energy. I, I I try to exercise, but I never do. And mm-hmm. it's hard. I, I'm I'm killing myself basically. Why not? Run, you know, walking. I can't run, but I can walk. Mm-hmm. But I don't do I don't do it. And why why don't I do it? I'm depressed. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough when you're not depressed to do it. Yeah. But when you're depressed, it's like uh, I'll blow that off today. So. I'm working on all those things. Yeah, and it's hard to work on all those things. Mm. Even when you're healthy, it's hard to work on all those things. Mm. Um, I think one of the studies Rhonda talked about uh, with the saunas is uh, patients that did one week of of the four times in the sauna um, – had significant reductions in depression for six weeks. Wow. How long do you stay in the sauna usually? Well, I think if you're just starting, you can't go into the sauna for 30 or 40 minutes, you know, especially okay. if it's one of those super hot ones, because it's, it's just too shocking for your body. So I think uh-huh. it's something you have to do like with fasting the first time, you know, maybe you can go in for five minutes or six minutes and then, you know, each week you, you try and add a few minutes uh, until you get up to that 30-minute range. Yeah. All right, I'm going to have to close. Unfortunately, people lose interest after 15 minutes or so. And uh, maybe we can have a part two because this is really fascinating and helpful information. And you articulated it very well. Well, thank uh, you. You were one of my best guests. Uh, Oh, do I win a prize? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, you win to get you got on my bike. <laughs> All right, I have to say goodbye, and thanks a lot for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me on, and I, I wish all your listeners uh, the best and of health and happiness. And and uh, again, in Judaism, we have a, a phrase, uh, "Rafua Shalema." It means you should have a a fast and complete healing for whatever is challenging you.